So um, welcome everybody. It's a little bit uh, over three o'clock. Uh, uh, welcome to another uh, online hot politics lab. Um, I am very happy to uh, introduce you today, uh, Professor Leonie Huddy, who's a professor at Stony Brook University. And uh, today, Leonie, I actually learned you are a trained zoologist. Uh, uh, and, um, and so you have studied uh, uh, animals uh, uh, for a long period of time, and uh, but you've really specialized on one particular type of animal, and that's the human being. Um, Professor Huddy is, is, is really uh, one of the leading political psychologists uh, in, uh, in the field, has uh, had uh, seminal contributions to a variety of topics, including uh, the, her work on party identification and the social identity uh, components underlying it, which has been central in uh, work of many people in our lab, but uh, she has done a lot more uh, work on, uh, on, on uh, female politicians, on nationalism, on uh, public opinion towards war, uh, to name just a selection. She has also been editing uh, uh, the handbook of uh, Oxford Handbook of Political Psychology, which is uh, a, a foundational uh, piece of work for anybody interested in political psychology. I must say I'm a little biased because I had the honor to write a chapter in it, but I think it's true. Um, today, uh, Leonie will give a talk on um, nationalism and party politics. And, uh, and Leonie, yeah, we really admire your work. So we, we're very pleased that you found some time in this busy period while you're also the department head at Stony Brook uh, to come and talk to us. Um, so uh, I will uh, keep my mouth shut and uh, listen, uh, listen with all attention to uh, your talk and uh, Diamantus will moderate the Q&A. For those of you who are new here today, uh, you can ask your questions by typing uh, them in the Q&A box and then Diamantus will read out the um, question uh, out loud and Leonie will answer. The people in Amsterdam can uh, raise their voice in collaboration or in negotiations with Diamantus. Um, so without further ado, uh, Leonie, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, but thanks for that introduction and welcome everyone. I'm going to uh, share my screen so that you can see my slides. Um, and Bert is right. I mean, I have worked on nationalism and partisanship, and today I'm going to bring them together. So that's part of my interest um, is to try and bring coherence to all of the things that I study. I see coherence. Hopefully you will, too. And I want to thank um, this the paper and the data that I'm going to talk about is also uh, co-authored with Alessandro Del Ponte, who is a former Stony Brook PhD uh, postdoc at Yale, soon to head to Alabama and Jacob Martin, who is a graduate student at Stony Brook. So let me amuse a little bit about this. Um, just trying to get that right. Yeah. Um, what about nationalism and partisanship? And I think this question isn't just relevant to the US. It's also relevant in other places. We have seen a rise in nationalistic rhetoric. And I'll come back in a moment to define what I mean by nationalism. But certainly that is how the Trump presidency and his candidacy were described. Uh, there was a great emphasis on notions such as building a wall on the southern border to keep immigrants out of the United States, opposing amnesty for legal immigration, trade wars. Um, in many ways, these are bedrock nationalistic issues. We've seen the same thing in Europe and we've actually written a paper about how nationalism uh, feeds into the opposition to the EU. And I'll refer to that on occasion, although I'm largely going to focus here on the US case. Um, and so in 2016, it was pretty clear there was an association between the Republican Party and nationalistic policies. But this raises questions, certainly in the US context about was this happening before Trump? 
And I think we all believe that there were indications in the Republican Party previous to Trump that allowed his ascendancy to be possible. Um, so in some ways, maybe we can trace this back to the events, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, another one of my topics, terrorism, um, which I think uh, pushed George Bush to articulate a form of nationalistic doctrine, this, um, this notion that uh, American power should be used to transmit American values to other nations. Um, as he said at the time, as George W. Bush said at the time after 9-11, America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world, and no one will keep that light from shining. It's a kind of classic nationalistic statement. And then we saw evidence, further evidence in 2003 with the Iraq war, subsequent opposition to immigration in the Republican party in the US. Um, and Diana Mutz has documented that there has been declining Republican support over time for free trade, another hallmark of a nationalistic orientation. What's interesting is if I go back to one of my old papers from 2007 and look at the GSS data from 1996, there was no association between nationalism and partisanship at that time. So previous to 9-11, there wasn't this association. So we've clearly seen a rise, we think we see a rise here um, in the influence of nationalism in the US. And this to me is relevant also to the question of partisan polarization, to what extent we have a largely two-party system, to what extent is nationalism an overlooked factor um, that's also contributed to this rising polarization in the US. We focused on other factors, but not that, and I think that's a mistake. Um, so I'll, hopefully I won't talk for too long. I know I don't have too long, but um, the questions that I'm interested in is first an important question about has nationalism in the public increased? When we've looked at Europe, uh, and I'll come back to this, we're largely, initially at least, focusing on the International Social Science Program, ISSP data, which at three time points has had a very extensive battery of questions on national attachments, allowing us to look at the same measurement over incremental time periods. In the EU case, when we looked at Western Europe, we we're looking at Western European nations using that ISSP data, there's no evidence that nationalism had actually increased in the public over time. Um, those are aggregate, they're, they're, it's not uh, panel data, it's just a series of cross sections, but no evidence. So that's the first question. The second question um, is, well, if it hasn't increased, has it increased in political importance? In other words, are we seeing a greater tie between voters' nationalism and support for a particular political party? And then the last piece of this that I'm going to tackle um, is an interesting question about whether nationalism appeals equally or has the same political appeal among white, black, and Latino Americans. Um, for various reasons, nationalism is a rather ethnocentric often associated with an ethnocentric view of the nation. Um, and so the first question is, do Blacks and Latinos hold nationalistic attitudes? And secondly, um, if the Republican Party is stressing nationalism, does it have equal appeal um, in terms of attracting minority supporters as well? So uh, mostly I, I get interested in this because I'm very interested in the psychology of nationalism versus patriotism. In previous work, we've drawn this distinction very heavily. Um, and I think it's an extremely important distinction. Um, I'm writing in the new handbook that Bert alluded to, I'm writing a chapter on national attachments and I'll stress very much that nationalism and patriotism are different. 
um, even though they're positively associated. So we'd say nationalism is linked to xenophobia, ethnocentrism, negative view of immigrants, and, and I think of it as a form of um, outgroup attitude. So it's us versus them. Um, it's also linked much more strongly than patriotism to individual difference measures such as authoritarianism and social dominance orientation. Patriotism, on the other hand, could be described as uh, positive feelings about the nation, um, sometimes love of country, um, and it is distinct from nationalism. It, I, I see it um, as linked to national identity. It's also linked to adherence to different norms. It can take different shapes depending on the nation, I think. This is one of the confusing things about patriotism. I'm not gonna talk about it too much here, but um, the important thing is when I talk about nationalism, it is not the same as a love of country. It is definitely a sense of national superiority. That's the important point. And, and I'd say anyone who looks at this literature will get their head spins because nationalism is used in so many different ways. So I urge you, if you're using it, to use it in, in, a, in a similar way as we're using it here. And I'll fold in the concept of ethno-nationalism. Um, there's a separate literature on this that has looked at um, civic versus ethno-nationalism, asking different questions. I'm folding that ethno-nationalism into nationalism, as you'll see. So first, let me just mention about uh, the measurement. And again, if you're interested in this, the ISSP remains, these modules, the national identity modules remain by far the best measurement approach to this. They're really an excellent battery of items. Um, there are three modules in, in the US, it's in 1996, 2004, 2014, roughly the same times in other nations. Um, our scale combines what we would consider to be the typical political psychology scale items. Um, people are asked to agree or disagree with these questions. I'd rather be a citizen of this country than of any other country in the world. World will be a better place if people from other countries were more like us um, and so on. But you'll also see that at the bottom here, I'm bringing in uh, what are typically dealt with separately uh, as sort of uh, ethno-nationalism questions. What does it mean to truly belong to the country? Do you have to have been born there? Do you have to have lived most of your life in the country? Do you need to share ancestry? Do you need to be, in, in the case of the United States, Christian? In other countries, it might be the dominant religion. Um, in this project, which is focusing on US data, but also in the European data, we've run um, measurement models on this. And um, we find that nationalism hangs together and is distinct from patriotism. The other, I'm not showing you here questions on patriotism, they measure differently. Um, what I'd like you to look at is the bottom here. You can see when we create a scale, a zero to one scale on nationalism, um, these levels don't look very different among white, black, Latino, and other would include Asian Americans. If anything, black Americans are slightly higher on nationalism. And again, this goes back to the notion that it's grounded to some extent in stable individual differences. That, uh, and and we, um, in, in some of our analyses, will control for patriotism too. The results I'll show you aren't different whether that's in or out here, but, um, but there is no difference. So it's hard to say that uh, members of minority groups are any different. That is not the case for patriotism, however. Love of country does vary by minority groups. Um, so this is, this is something that looks common across these different groups. So we can answer that first question. Do members of minority groups hold nationalistic attitudes? The answer is yes, they do. Um, so let's move on to the political effects. And what I'm going to show you here, uh, please look at the 
right y-axis, not the left one, which is the um, scale for the histogram, underlying histogram. But these are audit probit analyses of uh, the probability of being a Republican um, by year in the United States. The dark line, that black line is 1996. Um, it is slightly positive. Um, so if, depending on which way we look at this, we can find no relationship or a modest relationship. Um, but if you look at 2004 and 2014, looking at white Americans, you can see that there's a steep uptick in the link between being Republican and being highly nationalistic. So there's definitely been an increase over time. Um, if you look at black Americans in the second uh, panel of this graph, of this uh, slide, you can see that there is no relationship for black Americans between being nationalistic and the probability of being Republican. It's either flat or slightly negative. So there is a big difference here between white and black Americans in the relationship between being nationalistic and being Republican. Um, so that's our first piece of evidence here that um, it has nationalism increased in political importance? Yes, the answer is yes. Um, and, and while we can't pinpoint exactly how or why, Certainly the 2004 data was collected after 9-11 uh, when we've had an event that increased nationalistic rhetoric. Let me look at, this. so let's turn to a replication. So that, that's slight overtime data to suggest this has increased. Can we see this in other data if we look, especially these differences across uh, racial and ethnic groups and we can turn to Latinos. I haven't shown you Latinos in that ISSP data because it wasn't measured correctly in 1996. So it, I, I looked at it in 2004 and 2014, but we can look at it more fully here. Um, and here we're looking at ANES data from 2016 and 20 and voter study, um, a, a longstanding panel that was started in 12, beefed up uh, around the time of 16 and has continued through to 2020 or so. So um, unfortunately we don't have as good measurement of nationalism here. So what we have in the ANES, even though even though I've been on the ANES board and argued mightily for <laughs> more content, this is as far as I can get with it. So um, we have one of the sort of political standard political psychology scales. It would be better if the rest of the world was more like America. And then these ethno-nationalism items about what's important to be truly American, being born, speaking English, sharing ancestry, um, and, uh, and so those are the items we have in the ANES data in 16 and 20. The voter study is a panel. We only have these items once in 2016. Um, it's a little more, a little more items here. There are some things about the country that make me ashamed. That's often been a negatively uh, reverse worded item. I would rather be a citizen of this country than any other. The world would be a better place if they were like this. And then again, the ancestry uh, what, what does it mean to be truly, truly belong to the country, being born, living most of one's life, sharing ancestry? Um, I want to show you again, this is just from voter study, that if you look at white, black, uh, Hispanic, and other Americans, that nationalism, again, is, you know, no lower among blacks and Hispanics than it is among white Americans. So again, that answers the question that nationalism you know, if we think of it as at least to some degree, a stable individual difference is hanging around there. Um, and I would argue that every country has a bunch of people um, who would score more highly on nationalism. Um, and, and really, 
as we've argued in our other paper about Europe, it's really about the activation of nationalism rather than its existence. And that brings us back to really to political rhetoric, you know, that you can activate these people or they can be quiescent and perhaps it, things get more obvious once the parties start to polarize around something like nationalism, that you're starting to see people sorting along that basis as well. Um, so what does it look like in the voter study and the ANES um, looking just at the probability of being Republican again? Um, and again, look at the y-axis on the right-hand side. Um, this is just voter study 16, ANES 16. You can see the dark line here is white Americans, steep, steep relationship. Um, black Americans in the blue line at the bottom, totally flat. So no relationship. And what you do see is an interesting middling relationship with being among Latinos. So for Latino Americans, there is uh, some relationship between if you are nationalistic, you are more drawn to the Republican party. And if you know anything about American politics, you know that Latinos do not vote uniformly at, as strongly as African-Americans do for the Democratic Party. In any election, 60-something percent of Latinos will vote for uh, the Democrats, but that leaves many who vote for Republicans. Um, and and uh, we had a lot of discussion about that in 2020 with what appeared to be some uptick in Latino support for the Republican Party. And so it looks at least to some degree that some of this is predicated on this nationalistic rhetoric that, um, that uh, it is attracting highly nationalistic Latinos as well. So let me then say we have a couple of panels here uh, and I'm running through this quickly, but um, so what's what, what's what, you know, can we sort through this? This is not an experiment. This is looking at existing attitudes in the population by these different groups. Um, what, it, what you can see on the left-hand side is the, a, the voter study. And um, this is from 2016 to 2020. It's just the seven point uh, partisanship scale from 20 uh, with 16 subtracted. Now we don't expect much change here and, and keep focused on the zero line. That would be uh, where you just stay the same. A positive change is a shift towards the Republican party. So you can see on average, there was a little bit of a jump up between 16 and 20, at least in voter study. That is not the case in the ANES. So go back and forth and look. Again, we've got two different styles of surveys here. We can talk about how they collect their data and why they might look different. What you can see on the other side is the zero line. There's um, you know, some decrease and some increase. So if you look on, at the ANES side, the black and green lines are the whites and Latinos. If you're low in nationalism, you maybe have become more democratic. If you're uh, higher in nationalism, you've become a little more Republican. And these are just individual difference scores. And for African-Americans, not so much going on. Um, I should add that you're gonna come back and ask me, is it really nationalism? Um, if I put um, ideology into these equations, it is nationalism and not ideology that's driving this. So there really is something particular to nationalism that's pulling highly nationalistic whites and Latinos further over to the Republican side uh, between 16 and 20. And that might be surprising because it's, it's Trump the whole time. So, um, but you know, also Trump with that constant nationalistic rhetoric. Um, so it perhaps it's fine. It gets through increasingly over time to people who haven't been paying much attention. 
Um, but again, African-Americans are quite immune. Um, so what's going on? I mean, this is um, what we're looking at here is to what extent racial and ethnic identity holds people in place and leads them to resist this appeal to nationalism. So again, this is the probability of being Republican. Um, the histogram is nationalism underneath. So you can't see racial ID distributions. But what I'll tell you for um, the African-Americans, for the Blacks, is that there are not very many people at the not important level. This question is how important is being Black or African-American to you? How personally important is it? It's not important. It's moderately important, extremely important. And you can see on the left-hand side for Blacks, if, if your racial identity, which is most people, is moderately or extremely important, you are not moving uh, in the Republican direction, no matter how nationalistic you are. So it's holding people in place. The few people, and it's about 5%, who say it's not important to them, then nationalism does play more of a role. You can see here, and this is in fact um, a significant, these are all significant differences based on the degree of racial identity. If you look at Latinos on the other side, and again, this is how to study, you can see that um, if you, and for them, there's maybe 25% of people who say their racial identity is not very important to them. Nationalism is uh, much more relevant to becoming Republican. Uh, you can see that, that that's a fairly steep positive slope. Um, if you say it's extremely important being Hispanic or Latino, nothing. You know, again, nationalism is not relevant to you. So it's holding you in place as um, most likely a Democrat. So this is some evidence that what's going on is that uh, these, these group or ethnic racial identities are preventing people from enacting this nationalism, which is there. You know, we, we've demonstrated it's there. It's just not being politically activated for them because they're being held in place by their racial or ethnic identity and sticking to the Democratic Party. Um, and this is the AAS data, which looks pretty similar. This is the same thing Blacks and Latinos um, in the uh, 2016 data. So same sort of finding, it's a similar question. Racial identity is holding people in place, but if that weakens, then people are free to translate nationalism into support for the Republican Party. Um, so I, I know, I, I think I'm doing okay <laughs> in time, but uh, for me, this has, there are a number of interesting implications for this. So first, I think we can say, I'm saying, and you can prove me wrong, but I think that nationalism hasn't increased over time if we measure it this way. It, it, there's no evidence for that. What has changed is the political relevance to partisan politics. Um, and this is most pronounced at the moment among white Americans. Um, Black and Latino Americans are nationalistic. And I haven't shown you this, but nationalism in other work that we've published, nationalism has the same kind of other consequences for Blacks and Latinos. It drives anti-immigration policy. It drives, to some extent, maybe weak, more weakly opposition to free trade. So it's not like it doesn't mean the same thing it does. Um, but these ethnic and racial identity prevent Blacks and Latinos from translating this into partisanship to the extent to which they identify with their group. Um, so this raises some interesting questions. Uh, is, it, is it possible for the Republican Party, I, I'm not advocating for the Republican Party to do this, but it seems to me they could see the same kind of data. Is it possible for them to attract Black and Latino nationalists? Um, Trump would occasionally try 
he would appeal to black Americans by saying, what's the Democratic Party ever done for you? He, he didn't really try so hard with Latinos who he called rapists and criminals, but, um, but he did make some overtures to black Americans. And um, some people thought there might've been a little bit of an effect among, um, among some. Um, um, is it possible, for example, for not only the Republican party, but a European party to support Blacks and Latinos and other minority groups by saying, well, you're here and you're great and we're looking after you, but we're not letting any others coming in and we are gonna like, crush other nations or whatever it is. So can you actually develop such an ideology um, that it, it, it is really nefarious, but you can imagine a political party thinking if they were smart, they'd be thinking, okay, how do I do this? How do I peel this off so that we have this highly nationalistic but more inclusive internally kind of ideology. I don't even know if that's possible. We, we can argue about the nature of nationalism and whether that's even possible. Um, and that leads me to that last question about is there some inherent tension between nationalism and domestic ethnic and racial inclusion? I think we see in the US that not necessarily if we look at Latinos, that it, there is some opening there um, for a nationalistic party to attract them um, if they're not as aligned with their ethnic group. So anyway, uh, I, I think that this, while I've focused on the US, I think that this has relevance to other places. Um, and it's got very much to do with how parties operate and how they exploit these pre-existing proclivities of the public. And so I'm gonna stop sharing my slides and um, open it up for questions. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Hadi. This um, was a very, very interesting uh, presentation with uh, a lot of data that comes back from 2016 and over. So thank you very much. This is very enlightening. Um, so I'd like to, to give the floor to, to questions uh, that, that might um, exist here in our panel in Amsterdam or like from participants who uh, follow this virtually. Uh, but before doing so, perhaps uh, I can I can already uh, start by asking a, a small clarification question. So you started your talk by saying uh, that you know th this this sort of terrorism rhetoric is what's been pushing leaders towards more na nationalistic values and, and 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 political rhetoric in in principle. Was that was that correct? And do you think that this example represents like a more global sort of tendency or phenomenon, or is it just like bind to the two? To US um, politics. You know, I mean, this is this is a supposition. Obviously, I can't demonstrate that these events, 9-11, but we certainly saw a rise in reaction to that. I think it fueled um, concerns about Muslim migration, even to the US, which you know hasn't been a major issue, but that also became more paramount in in discussions of immigration. And I think if we look to Europe, it may be even more intense in Europe, this association, this tight association between immigration and terrorism. Um, in the US, it's a bit more of a mixed bag. I think Trump tried by calling Latinos criminals, you know, it was sort of like, a, because that's a much more visible ethnic migrant group to the US, he tried to bring in violence and criminality. Um, so it's probably a little more, it, it's always a little more complex than that. But I do think my view on this is that politicians exploit these situations um, and that there you know, may be underlying agendas that they can then pursue, that these events provide opportunities 
to try out different kinds of rhetoric to see what has traction. And it's not always clear that this would have had the same traction in the past. You know, there may be a time, and we, we I think we've speculated endlessly about populism and right-wing political parties, but what exactly is it that allows these parties to emerge? Um, so if someone can resolve that definitively, that would be really great. <laughs> But I think it's a tough question. I mean, it is a tough question. And, and I don't think, again, my view is it's not the public that's changing so much. Given our views of political psychology, it's not so much that changing is that, you know, you know, parties can peel them off in different ways, sort them out in different ways by uh, developing different lines of rhetoric. All right, thank you. Um, yes, uh, Christian has a question here. Uh, thank you for the presentation, it was super interesting. Um, I was wondering, did you have a look at what's the role of economic background here? Um, when it comes oh, to can you speak up a little bit? I'm gonna try and put my speaker up even more. Someone's doing my, this is the time when all our leaves are getting blown outside. <laughs> so this is happening right, today when the guy is there with the leaf blower. So, so shout. <laughs> well, um, do you have any idea what's the role of economic background here, especially how economic background might uh, relate to um uh, racial identity and, and yeah that differs okay, so, yeah no i mean so let's if we step back from nationalism and look i was saying that it has a sort of individual difference basis but there's also an education link to nationalism so less educated people i mean and that's probably more important i'm just going to look here at what i've got but i think that's a little more important even than economics we have looked at I have a book chapter, so I'm just looking now. Um, income and education, but education, I think, has the bigger effect. So less wealthy people are also likely to be nationalistic. Um, now, these attitudes, you know, okay, so uh, you know, we've looked endlessly at things like immigration policy in the US and immigration attitudes. To what extent is it economic? And we can never find it. I think research has been done elsewhere on this. We've looked obsessively. The only time that people can find it is when it's a very, very specific type of immigrant that will specifically affect your type of a job. Um, so it's less clear that it's purely economic in nature. I think, you know, the effects I'm looking now, let's see, you know, authoritarianism probably has a bigger effect on this than economics. I'm looking back at my, I have this book chapter, I'm looking at my table, yeah, it looks like it. <laughs> so, um, and that's not just in our data that I was mentioning, the Osborne Sibley paper, it's a political psychology paper where they looked at this in New Zealand. And these trends are remarkably similar in different countries. And Isabella had a question also. Yeah. Thanks a lot for your talk, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm wondering about the, um, the descriptive results you showed where uh, you showed that African Americans report higher levels of nationalism or kind of very high levels. Um, and I thought that was surprising and wondering um, kind of prominently Barack Obama was always um, accused of not being a true American. I'm wondering how much you think African Americans could over over report their nationalism because they might feel a pressure to prove that they're truly American. 
Um, yeah, so I mentioned that we've also looked at patriotism. Um, in another paper, we look at both, and African-Americans are lower in patriotism. So that, 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 that's an interesting puzzle. So that's the more typical finding that my members of minority groups in many countries around the world will report lower levels of attachment to the nation. So the fact that we get slightly, that's what makes nationalism interesting is in fact, we get slightly, no, it's slightly higher, even after controlling for education, there's a slight positive relationship between being black and being more nationalistic. Um, I don't have an answer for that. You know, it's an interesting question. We'd have to delve into, I understand why African-Americans would report lower patriotism. Some of the questions are also terrible for this. If you look at the ISSP battery, it will be, how proud do you feel of your country's treatment of minority groups? <laughs> this is obviously a difficult question. We're proud of this, that, and the other. So that tends to push down pride. Um, but um, this idea that our country is better, you know, maybe compensation, you know, like we we're, you know, even though our country's screwed up, uh, we are still a great country, you know, like uh, I think we're better than the others. Um, so I, I think that that's an interesting puzzle. I'm not making too much out of that, but the major point for me is it's not lower. There are other questions. Uh, Heis has a question. Yes. Hi, uh, Lily. Uh, um, thanks for your talk. Um, I was wondering, there quite often people make distinctions between civic and ethnic nationalism. Uh, is that something you're looking at as well? This is my, you know, this is my complaint about the literature. So I'm going to like enter into a diatribe here about how we've had these two literatures that have gone off in different directions. Um, and so we've been doing these measurement models to, that ISSP battery has both sets of items in it. So if you look at it, they're also in there. This is what, what does it make to be a truly good blank? You know, a truly good American. Is that someone who's born in the country? These are asked in many countries. When we look at it in our measurement model, it loads with all the nationalism items. Um, they're, they're really, it's tight. It's a tight structure. I mean, you know, I know, I know these develop differently these concepts of um, civic versus ethno-national were really developed for different nations, right? It was a way to try and describe different cultures, different political ideologies, different histories, but in truth, they've been used internally, right? To try and sort people out. And I, I think, you know, we you know, civic, I call it civic patriotism. Okay, so civic patriotism to one side, but these other items on ethno-nationalism are just nationalism by another word, you know, we can debate what we should be calling it. So I know Jack Citrin, who's a friend of mine, will kill me because he really strongly believes that this is an independent line of research, but I have to differ, you know, the measurement stuff is pretty clear. And I should add that we've also looked at the invariance of the structure of patriotism, nationalism, which is invariant across our racial and ethnic groups. Um, so we've looked at that in a measurement model context. So it's not like it, go, it doesn't go together differently for different groups either. So if you have some of your friends who are studying this, let's try to bring them together. <laughs> I know they'll never listen to us. They'll never listen to us. The comparative politics are like, oh no, this is totally different. Leonard. Um, yeah, 
So you have to shout. You really have to shout. Thank you, Leonie, for your amazing presentation and excellent question. One of your first slides you showed. Um, how the Republican Party became more nationalist during the last 20 years. How would you say responded the Democratic Party to that? Is also nationalism more important part of the Democratic Party nowadays? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you would not say that the Democrats are nationalistic. I mean, part of this if you wind it back, if we think back to foreign policy, um, we had under the Bush administration, uh, when Obama came in, remember Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and we said, oh, finally, we're back to proper diplomacy and foreign policy, remember this? And then there was Trump and they were like, oh, finally, we're back to talking to other nations again. So we've gone through this herky-jerky thing, but the Republicans were always emphasizing, no, it's our way or the highway. It seems to be the general line, you know, that it's US interests first and foremost, and we're not chatting with people. We're pulling out of the Iranian deal where, you know, we just don't really care. Now I know Biden got some of this flack over uh, the Iraq, the Afghanistan pullout, but, uh, but in general, I think the, there, there is a much less hard edge tone. If there is one, it's like maybe China right now. So China is a more specific topic, but it is not a general form of nationalism. So is that answering, I'm not sure I got all of it, but is that, is that your question? It's about whether the Democrats are also highly nationalistic in rhetoric? Yeah, if you follow foreign policy very closely, you know, the State Department, people in the State Department cry when the Republicans come in and they're like happy when the Democrats come back because it's sort of back to normal diplomacy. Um, right? I mean, they're like, like it's tragic when the Republicans, because every, every people leave under Trump, a lot of them just left. It's like it's a dead enterprise. Um, I mean, you must feel that over there. <laughs> You're seeing it from the other side, you know. Um, so, so I think, you know, and what's happening, of course, we don't know polarization, the partisan polarization probably is a, like an amplifying effect on all of this as well. But, um, but I, I wanna underscore that it, it seems weird to me that we haven't properly focused on nationalism as an ingredient in all of this. It seems like a huge omission. It's been um, just ignored and, and poorly measured and all, all of my complaints <laughs> about nationalism as just sort of being a leftover concept. Thank you. Um, and I do I see any other questions here? No, not necessarily. I know that Bert has a question on the other side of the, of the line, so let me pass the floor over. Bert? Yeah, and let me also, uh, ah, there's somebody in this Zoom, Matthijs. Uh, but now I have to work, so I'm going to ask my question anyway. So thanks, Leonie, for this, uh, this exciting talk. I was thinking for a moment it was Stanley who was moaning the law. <laughs> on, uh, uh, but it was. Um, so, um, my question uh, is this, it relates, so, so actually Jardina, Jardina's book on, on white racial resentment uh, has obviously made a big impact on the understanding of, of sort of the, the dynamics in American politics. And, but what you seem to describe is a separate mechanism, right? But, but I'm wondering to what extent among the whites is the, is the under, is to what extent is among the whites nationalism and white racial resentment the same but then where the unique component comes in is where you show that you can 
mobilize, uh, uh, especially the Latino uh, in, in, that, in that direction of the Republican Party? Is that where the two lines are diverging? And, or do you say, well, also the line among the, the, the whites, it, nationalism is something different than this white racial resentment? Or is there some conceptual overlap? And would there be ways of empirically teasing it apart? Because if I remember, I should know this because I was in the committee reading Ashley's book for, for an award, uh, but I forgot the exact wording of, of, the, of the item she uses, but, but uh, is it partly the same item wording or are there distinct word, wordings uh, and items? So Because then you would be able to tease it apart partly, empirically. A good question. Um, the question, what, what we do have, which I think is very similar to one of Ashley's questions, is the importance of being white. You saw that I was showing you the racial importance question that's also there for whites it's much more strongly aligned with nationalism for whites. It's not the case for African-Americans or for Latinos, but it is for white Americans. And so it's clearly this, this nationalism has taken on these white overtones, right? Even though blacks and Latinos share this and, can, and have resonance with some of it, that's really the dilemma, right? It's like, if you push hard on it's just whites for whom this works, then it's exclusive. Um, um, so we should look at, you know, I've looked at ideology, I should look more closely and tease out the white identity. If we put white identity in, it doesn't do anything for nationalism because it's too strongly related. It's not conditional, they're, they're just interrelated concepts. Um, and so I think we need to tease this part. This is a work in progress, by the way. So, <laughs> so we need to, like, we've got to bulletproof it, I think, a little more. Um, to say, but I think our novel, and you may be right, but that it is that all of this is rolled together. When we study partisanship and the polarization of the US, everything is rolled together. It's unbelievably difficult to study this in cross-sectional format. It's like it's, it's frighteningly difficult. But um, but I think we've got at least a small angle on this with the uh, with the members of the minority racial and ethnic groups um, to sort of demonstrate that. So I'll I'll think a little bit more about that, about what we can do and tell that story uh, because I'm not sure it's a different story in one sense. It just helps to flesh out who, you know, which, what comes first, right? This is the interesting question. Does white identity come first or is this nationalism a more foundational concept? Yes, and, and, and I, I, but uh, obviously not an American politics scholar per se, but but I think this mobilization of of the minorities and especially the Latinos that's that's an that's an important uh, uh, phenomena with with interest right because there it can definitely not be white racial resentment right it would be that that would be weird or confusing yeah. to me yeah. so yeah. so for them that's it's the mobilization on nationalism I guess yep yeah. Would that not, but I'm not just thinking out loud if it's given that it's a work in progress, would that not call for some sort of experimental design where you would, um, where you would measure nationalism in a wave one and then in a wave two uh, uh, propose some politicians that with more or less nationalistic uh, uh, rhetoric to see if that activates the, um, the, um, the, 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 the more nationalist parts of your of your survey and maybe even subset that among the different uh, the different ethnic groups. And one of my graduate students is working on that right now, but <laughs> excellent. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so oh, that's like great. A, <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, 
he's Latino by background. He's very interested in the Latinos in this. So, yeah. um, that, that, so he's working on a design right now to test that very idea. So I think it is, that's amenable. I mean, it is amenable, especially since we think this is a dynamic situation and it's linked to rhetoric. Um, so yeah, so it's a great suggestion. Yeah. I'm gonna hand over the, the microphone to Diamantes again. You're muted, Diamantes. You're muted. Thank you, Bert. Uh, since we have little time left and two more questions, it's nice to, uh, to uh, also hear what Professor Hadi has to uh, tell us about that. So there's a, a short question by Tobias uh, Rohrbach, uh, who is asking about intersections between the multiple social categories that you might see in the data. For example, the role of gender or ethnicity, race. Uh, that's an interesting question. So what we would find is, you know, in, in the data we've looked at in the US, women are slightly more nationalistic and less patriotic for whatever reason. But um, my experience in trying to, let's say, break out our racial groups further, if that's if it's a question about intersectionality between gender and race, is that we often don't find anything. You know, if I look at race and I look at gender, they're often independent effects. Um, now it becomes difficult to fully divide up in these samples. We don't have a lot of black or Latino participants in these surveys. They're large, but they're not that large. So that makes it a little challenging, but in past work that I've done looking at uh, let's say interactions between gender and race and ethnicity, I found nothing. I, I understand it's a very popular concept, but uh, we need more evidence that this is really happening, you know, that there really are distinctive outlooks among female African-Americans compared to male African-Americans on these issues. There may be on other issues, but on these political issues, it's hard to find, especially with partisanship, group loyalties and so on. Right. Thank you for this. Um, there is another question from uh, Matthijs um, Rodin. Uh, thank you for this interesting presentation. Uh, the question is about the activation of nationalism. We know that also in many European countries, exclusionistic forms of nationalism haven't really increased over the years. And often heard explanation for the success of far-right parties is, and that is in line with your own argument, that political rhetoric has activated these attitudes and made them consequential for voting behavior. This could imply that increased salience of other topics will diminish the effect of nationalism again. Focusing on the Republican Party, do you think that a strategy of becoming more inclusive could also backfire for Republicans? After all, this could also make white Republicans less likely to vote Republican Party as the nationalism might then be deactivated. Um, I mean, interesting question. So uh, first, let me say something about Europe, because we wrote a paper recently, it was in political psychology. So I urge whoever was asking that question to read it, because <laughs> I think it answers that question about uh, the presence of uh, what we classified as a right wing, well, I call them nationalistic parties. I'm, I've got my own feelings about populism, and we could talk about that later. But um, I call them nationalistic parties, that uh, a stronger party um, increased the relationship in this case between nationalism and EU opposition. So the question here was, um, and in countries without that sort of party, nationalism was more inert as of, so nationalism was there in other countries, but without the presence of one of these parties, it wasn't being translated into EU opposition. Um, 
And interestingly, we found that these effects were greatest among the best educated individuals. So those who are highly nationalistic and well-educated were the first to seemingly pick up this rhetoric and understand that, um, that they can translate this nationalism into both EU opposition and also support for the far-right parties. So, so there's clearly, uh, we have some evidence there that the presence of the parties and their popularity enhanced these effects. Um, to go back to the US, what, what's the strategy in the US? I mean, right now the Republican party, uh, if you observe the country is doing everything it can to try and win elections by cooking the books, if, if you will. Um, they are facing a changing electorate. Now, if you look at what I just presented and you're Republican, you'd say, well, maybe there's some hope there to attract Latino supporters and I don't need to do a whole lot. But if you look at the demographics, the country is becoming increasingly diverse, which is I think why you're seeing so much effort placed into um, restricting voter rights and so on uh, to try and prevent people from voting. So the Republicans face a challenge. Now, yes, they, if they became more inclusive, what might happen? Um, they're going at some point to have to appeal to black and Latino voters. I mean, it's just an impossibility. You cannot win if, if you keep looking at these demographics, you can't win. But maybe this kind of angle that we're looking at here, this nationalistic angle could work if you soft pedal a little bit of it, do something on immigration um, for the people already in the US, um, do it maybe keep the rhetoric high and the act and the actions less visible, um, you know, so that you're speaking to segmented aspects of your population. Um, what you have right now is a lock. The Republicans have a lock on basically white Christian evangelicals. Uh, they're not they're not going anywhere and they're really uh, very, very devoted voters. So they're holding the party together. If you look at what's happening now, as we discuss the abortion case in the Supreme Court in the US is exactly their cup of tea. That's what they're looking for. And so, you know, the party can work on multiple fronts. Um, but um, so I think, you know, you wouldn't just go wholesale, become a democratic party, but there may be nefarious strategies that you can employ to signal to one group separately from another. Um, so uh, if that answers the question, I'm not trying to shape the Republican Party, but I would, I do think it's healthier for democracy to have, you know, two viable <laughs> parties, you know, um, that can actually, you know, trade voters and so on. So. Thank you. Um, and there is a last question before um, time runs out and I'll have to pass the floor to Bert. Um, uh, it comes from Sana Van Osten. Um, um, in her research, she finds a lot of evidence for Civil, uh, civilizationism, which is a specific form of nationalism in which people argue uh, their civilization is better because of being in favor of issues such as free speech, democracy, homosexuality, and gender equality. Do you see any tendencies towards this in your research? Um, that's not the nature that uh, the direction that nationalism has taken in the US, but you can imagine uh, that someone who is highly nationalistic on the left could go for something like this, right? I mean, it, it is possible. Um, what we're seeing in the US is nationalism being pulled to the right. But what I was saying back in the 90s, there wasn't so much of a relationship. So at that point, it was up for grabs to some extent. You know, I could be a left-wing politician and decide to develop um, an anti-immigration 
anti-free trade, protect the population sort of argument, and that could be folded into that. You know, you can see that um, the questions themselves are pretty uh, agnostic as to direction. It's just my country's better, you know, we're a superior group of people. Um, so I think, you know, it is possible to poach it on the left or right. Um, it just, you know, we just happen to be in a moment where everyone's being pulled to the right. Right, thank you. Thanks a lot, uh, Professor Hadi. Um, the, the time is five to okay. um, uh, four, and that means I'll have to pass the floor to Bert for some yeah. last minute announcements. Yeah, and and uh, um, Leone, I'm going to ask you one one generic question. Um, we have a lot of young people in our lab and also in uh, listening in. Uh, if you would give them one advice as uh, as uh, as somebody with an overview of the field, like one one career advice, like what what should they be thinking about or what, what is a good thing to do or something they should definitely not do it's a very general question but i was <laughs> a very question. no but i know you've, you've been known to mentor a lot of people in the field in in uh, for many years so i was just curious about what are some of the best advice you want to if you want to succeed as a political psychologist you know and in my advice is maybe not the right advice maybe it's old-fashioned advice but i always say people should be really interested in what you're doing like you should be very interested you should read about it you should think about it you should I, I would say traveling is very helpful go exploring think about the world um and that's it you know i know i, I get you you may be not the same in netherlands but in the us i'm getting very professional advice like do this and do that and do something else and that's how you're going to succeed but if you don't love what you're doing and you don't find it interesting forget it go do something else. <laughs> so that's what I always say. And I mean, it's, you know, find interesting topics. If you're bored by them, so will everyone else be when you write about them, <laughs> right? I mean, that's it. You're like, if you're bored by it, like how can you possibly transmit interest and enthusiasm? So, so I mean, the world, we live in a fascinating, you know, as much as it's a crazy, strange world, it's a very fascinating world. Um, and humans are really complicated, animals but was alluding to animals but humans are far more difficult to study than other animals <laughs> i don't know why i ended up in this direction and not that one but anyway in an interesting career <laughs> um leone uh, thank you very much for uh for this uh, fascinating talk and uh, and also this uh this last bit of a career uh, advice and um, i'm gonna uh, uh use the last minute to uh, uh to announce uh, that uh next week is our last uh, meeting of the year uh, we have uh, frederick hop who just uh, who will be defending his phd the evening before he gives the uh, the talk in the hot politics lab and just mind you is he will defend his phd at uh university of uh, california santa barbara while he's in amsterdam so that will be a big time difference for him but he will join us on uh, friday to talk about some of his political neuroscience work and uh, uh and i have been putting together uh the program for uh the um, uh, spring speaker series and just a couple of names that we are excited about to announce is that dana young from university of delaware will speak uh natalie giger from the uh, University of Geneva, uh, Christophe Eck, who was just hired at the Amsterdam School of Communication Research on Climate Change, um, Josh Kala from Yale will give a talk, uh, uh, Arvid Kappas uh, from the University of Bremen. Uh, so uh, a bunch of exciting uh, 
speakers from various fields with various methods and we'll be filling up our list in the coming uh, days uh, so uh, uh, we hope to uh, see some of you uh, as long as it can last in Amsterdam and otherwise virtually uh, in the zoom environment um, but uh, thanks a lot again Leonie I believe you still have 50 minutes of time for some uh, some informal mentoring uh, and uh, um, uh, wish uh, all of you uh, a happy uh, Sinterklaas weekend because that's what we uh, do in our seminars. Sinterklaas is sort of our nationalist tradition, right? So uh, um, enjoy that and uh, I'll see you all next week again. And thanks to everyone. Thank you. Great.